Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, guys, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it at all. You don't feel good? What's going on, Alan? My wonderful, beautiful, immensely precious germ vector of a toddler <laughs> brought, mm. brought the latest upper respiratory. You got a little bit of that summer flu floating around? Uh, I just, I got to say, I mean, colds are never pleasant, but somehow in the summer, they're just, it's like, it's like insulting. Well, the summer flu, uh, if you haven't been keeping up on your social media, on, on your on your COVID social media, has been the fact that there's a COVID wave going around and people keep referring it to it as the summer flu <laughs> because they don't want to admit it's they have COVID and have to shut their restaurants down. It does stink, though. I, I sympathize. I have been wrestling with, I think, our allergies, but maybe it's a cold. I don't know. With toddlers, it's all just up in the air. They're just, they're putting everything in their mouths. They're just licking everything constantly. It's just, it's, I know it's good for them. I know that it's good for them in the long term, but yikes. Yeah, I say yikes. I mean, look, we could all live in bubbles if we wanted to. Like, if we just gave everyone a bubble, we wouldn't have to deal with this ever. Bring so. back smallpox. Yeah, there you go. Wow, this escalated quickly. <laughs> RFK Jr. for president, baby. <laughs> that should be his tagline. RFK Jr. bringing back small, make smallpox great again. Oh, my God. No smallpox, only big pox. Guys, this is our worst this B-roll. This is terrible. This, this, <laughs> this, this is not acceptable B-roll. Ever had. This is rough. It's summer, guys. Bad. It's oh. hard. It's a hard time of year. And hello, everyone. Welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, here in the IRL studio with my other co-host, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And our third co-host, as always, joining us remotely from the beautiful state of Minnesota, at least this month, Alan Rosenstein. Alan, thank you for joining with us. Thank you. It is in the the low 80s in the glorious upper Midwest. We are calling this the Dog Days episode. We are in the Dog Days of Summer, but I feel like that's a bad title because it's actually really nice here right now. And I feel like it's actually pretty nice in Minnesota. These are like the abnormally nice days of August. We have like three of these every year, and I think we're in the midst of it now. Yeah. No, it's nice. Yeah, for Minnesota... July tends to actually be our our hottest month. August is actually kind of nice. Mm, I know that's mm. not generally true for DC, having lived there for many years. There's, I think feel like July is hotter, but August is more humid. Oh, I don't know about that. Oh, okay. I don't know about that. As a lifelong Washingtonian, I'll say okay. August is rough, guys. July is rough too. Honestly, the whole summer pretty pretty down there. But this really kind of subpar episode titling uh, is representative of the general quality we're anticipating for this entire episode. Because <laughs> if I'm being honest, again, it's August, guys. We're tired. We're hot. We all got vacations we're planning and other things going on. Uh, and it's a little lazy here in Washington, D.C. It's the best time of year in D.C. because things get real quiet. 
but it sometimes doesn't leave you a lot to talk about. Yeah, I love it. I love when it's quiet and the former president is indicted three times, oh, possibly this, a fourth time. The it's city's so quiet. still really quiet. <laughs> I don't know about you, you, man. I've been around? working really hard. Oh, but this, but it, the rest of the government is super sleepy, as it is every year this time of year. Imagine if this were all hap- this indictment were happening like in the middle of the NDA debate. Like the meaningful debate that happens later, like it could be way worse. Lots I'm just of saying, thing, I don't. I don't times. want people to think that we have been slacking off. I don't. I don't think people think we've been slacking. Quinta doesn't want people to think that she's been slacking. She's been working very hard. Exactly. It has been. It has been for us not that dog days of summer, not a lazy summer. But in spite of that, the rest of the world it's been a little quiet. But we're excited to get here with you to talk through a couple of the still big stories that are happening in national security news, including one of which Quinta just alluded to, and what we are calling in honor of this period, the Dog Days edition of Rational Security. Topic one, eco-washed. We are now several weeks into a coup in Niger, a country once seen as one of the more reliable Western partners in the Sahel region and home to French and U.S. troops who have been helping the Nigerian military combat a local Islamist insurgency. Even as the Nigeria-led Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, has threatened sanctions and intervention to unwind the coup, neighboring states like Burkina Faso and Mali, with close ties to Russia and its Wagner Group, have threatened a military response in kind. What might this coup mean for the future of the Sahel, and how should the United States be responding? Topic 2. A Tale of Two Sittings Former President Donald Trump is now the subject of two different criminal indictments, each of which is being overseen by a very different judge in a very different way. What do we make of the divergent approaches thus far, and what does it mean for the effectiveness and legitimacy of the justice system in these highly polarizing cases? And topic three, Cosa Nosa. Get that? Cosa Nosa? Like Cosa Nostra? Okay. Uh, that one requires explanation. <laughs> You're not going to get this one by looking at it online. So sorry, readers. <laughs> and I don't know if I really helped actually pronouncing it. So I felt like it warranted some explanation. A bipartisan coalition in Congress has rolled out a new version of the Kids Online Safety Act, or COSA. That seeks to respond to concerns raised by digital rights and civil liberty groups while still taking steps towards protecting children online. But many on the right and left aren't having it. What should we make of this new proposal and the reactions it's provoked? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So over the last week or so, we have seen an unspooling military coup in Niger. Uh, so Niger's democratically elected president, Mohamed Bazoum, has been ousted from office and is currently being held captive by a general who was previously the chief of his presidential guard, um, General Omar Tichiani. It's been a bit of a strange week. Um, Obviously, coups are never super normal and unsurreal. But there was a very strong initial international condemnation. Uh, there was a deadline set by an international coalition, essentially for the coup plotters to stand down um, and hand power back to Bazoum. That deadline passed, I believe, on Sunday. And it doesn't seem like anything has really happened since then. It's also, I will confess, not totally clear to me why this coup happened and For that matter, what Nigerians think about it, if it is a manifestation of anything other than a spat between uh, the now head of the country, uh, Tsjani, and uh, Bazoum. So, Scott, I'm going to turn it to you, as we so often do on foreign policy matters. What the hell is going on? It's a very good question. And the answer is, I don't think we really know, um, which is actually something you don't get quite as much honesty from in a lot of the reporting on this, which has instead has kind of like 
glossed over and provided useful narratives of aspects of the issue without really providing as much detail about the background of the coup, the background of governance in Niger, or some of these nearby countries that are involved in this conflict. I mean, I think what we know so far is that at least the precipitating event for this coup was actually, of all things, a personnel dispute around kind of an elite military force, uh, special operations force relating to the president, I think actually involved in his personal security. That led the possibility that their commander, who had been a longstanding commander, might be removed, precipitated a dispute that kind of rapidly catapulted into a coup by an elite contingent of the military. It's not clear all the military was actually involved. In fact, the president was providing assurances for a a good period that, in fact, he thought the regular military was going to come in and save him and put down the coup, which has not happened as of yet. But still, in theory, it could still happen. The president is under house arrest, still was able to communicate pretty easily with the outside, published an op-ed in the Washington Post actually asking for international intervention, including specifically the United States by name, um, to aid them in putting down the coup. Um, But the United States has not bit as of yet, neither really has the international community, notably, you have instead have saw ECOWASH, this economic community of West African states, um, which is a pretty influential regional group that has been involved in military interventions in the past as well as kind of regional diplomacy um, in a way that that is much more outside the economic realm. So its name's a little bit of a misnomer, um, led primarily by Nigeria, which is probably the major military power in West Africa, more or less, um, and a major political power. Um, they threatened intervention to put down the coup if the president wasn't put back in place. They also installed an array of economic sanctions. Um, but that effort was quickly countered by the governments of Mali and Burkina Faso, um, which uh, border uh, with Niger, and both of which are led by military governments that themselves took power in a coup, in coups, and perhaps even more importantly, have developed ties with Russia and with Russia's Wagner Group as a alternative to Western military support, which is something that Niger has leaned heavily on, Nigeria, ECOWAS states lean very heavily on. So there is this kind of superpower competition, new Cold War gloss being put all over this, although I, I think it's dangerous to lean too far into that for reasons we can get into. So we're stuck in the scenario right now where it looks like the people who perpetrated this coup are kind of sitting in place and not yet yielding. A lot of people thought ECOWAS was threatening military intervention, but were worried about its actually ability to execute effectively. Because even though Nigeria is a major military power, these sorts of interventions are very tricky and complicated. And ECOWAS itself has been not been as involved militarily in these sorts of things more recently. You uh, have this threat of response by Mali Burkina Faso that risks spilling out into potential broader conflict if actually followed up on, although how serious that is is a fair question. Um, there's also big questions as to you know the extent to which they would present a serious military threat to like Nigeria if that were actually the direction they decided to move things in. Um, so it's a very messy situation without any clear path of resolution. Um, we've seen the major senior U.S. diplomats begin to get engaged, although fairly quietly. You know, I, we know that uh, I think it was Victoria Nuland, who's currently the acting deputy secretary, um, took a trip there in the last few days to directly engage with senior Nigerian leaders and coup leaders to talk about this. We, I don't think we've gotten a very clear readout about the results of that other than they talked. It's a complicated situation. The United States is actively engaged at a high level, which is good. But the consequences could be significant because not only is Niger now the latest country in the Sahel to fall, potentially, if you want to frame it this way, to Russia-backed allies and Wagner Group, who now uh, the the coup leaders are supposedly reaching out to in Mali about establishing a contract and establishing kind of a line of association, much like Mali and Burkina Faso have. Niger has been seen as the stable state in the Sahel 
that has been the hub of U.S.-backed and particularly French-backed military intervention in the region aimed at putting down a Islamist insurgency that's very, very persistent throughout the Sahel and has been a major source of regional instability. Uh, and so the concern is now, well, are U.S. and French troops going to have to withdraw? Um, are all of these drone bases and other things maintained by them going to hand, be handed over to the Russians? What happens to Niger's regional role? Um, so it's a very, very messy picture. And I'm not sure we have a super clear idea about the right way to resolve it or the factors that go into it. So one thing that I found interesting about this is how the the broader issue of these military coups in the Sahel is being framed and described in, in the press. I mean, obviously, you know, if you look at a map, it's quite notable. You have this band of countries running from literally across the entire continent that have fallen in the last several years to these military coups. Presumably, there's something about this region and its recent history or its underlying economic or social or political instabilities that is leading to this. At the same time, there does seem to be this narrative developing that there's almost a domino effect happening here that, you know, with each country in this region that falls to a coup, the probability in a causal sense of the next country falling is is sort of higher. And that might be true, but, I, you know, that also to me raises concerns that one could sort of overread into this and go back to a kind of a, almost a sort of Cold War domino theory approach to looking at the the, the region, which, you know, as, as anyone who studied the Cold War knows, led to a lot of sort of unfortunate and unnecessary mistakes and interventions. And so I don't have an answer to this, obviously, but I'm sort of curious, Scott, um, you know, whether you think that these sorts of, you know, wh whether domino theories in the causal sense ever have much to recommend them. Yeah, I think you actually put your finger on exactly my reservations about the way people talk about this incident, framing around the domino theory, theory, which I think is a good way to, a good way to critique this. Because there is this idea that you hear a couple different narratives, right, that kind of overlap here. One, there is just the idea that the Sahel generally and frankly like a lot of Africa is just prone to coups. Um, this is a underlying media bias. Like there are – coups are not uh, – do happen in Africa uh, and a number of countries in Africa and in the Sahel. Um, so there is a descriptive element that's correct about that. It's also – underlies a lot of kind of post-colonial biases um, about Africa and African governance that kind of lays into a lot of analysis in part because, remember, these are relatively young states that are coming out of complicated colonial pasts and histories with a lot of very troubling legacies, a lot of a lot of internal challenges and regional challenges. Way too many straight line borders, which is never never a good sign. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Somewhat arbitrary borders, some might say, uh, in a lot of cases. You know, long story short, states with a lot of challenges. And so I think a lot of people say, well, frankly, there's a tendency in the media to say, oh, it's another coup, another coup in Africa. And people tend to write it off and doesn't get that much attention. This one is getting more attention, but it's because of this revamped Cold War narrative, which is this idea that's saying, oh, well, but this is one being driven by Wagner Group. Um, and the Mali Burkina Faso intervention in this is a driver of uh, or a reflection of the fact that this is some part of conscious strategy or at least a, a dominant trend that's highly troubling and that, you know, it might continue and cascade even further if this isn't stopped here. Like Niger is the line in the sand to stop this parade of horribles that will then come um, when Russia takes over Western Africa. You know, I don't think either of these narratives are super useful. There, there's like, again, a thread of consistency or logic behind them, right? Like it's clear Wagner Group is present in the region. It's clear that Russia is capitalizing on some of the challenges that the United States and particularly France and particularly in the Sahel, it's worth noting, much more than the United States uh, as the former colonial power, capitalizing on the weaknesses they have in having presences there, some of their own mismanagement, their own mistakes they made. And there's an effort to do that. 
I don't think that leads into the idea that this coup is somehow a result of Russian intervention or action. Um, I don't think there are any signs of that as of yet, nor is there a lot of signs that that's the sort of thing that Russia could be doing. Yeah, among other things, I feel like Wagner is like kind of busy right now. Yeah, exactly. And maybe not in lockstep with Vladimir Putin. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it is a it's a complicated way to a, a overly simplified way to read this and a kind of trend that you will see kind of particularly like the grand strategy types say, oh, this is all about countering our superpower rival. And that's sort of logic we saw and the Cold War constantly that I think led to a lot of negative outcomes because it allows you makes you really overvalue certain consequences in a way that doesn't actually reflect, I think, their policy reality. And I'm a little worried you'll see that here. You know, I, I, I'm not sure that while I think there are, I'm not one who's anti-intervention in all cases. I think there are certain circumstances where military intervention can be a reasonable policy. Um, I think it has to be very high bar. And this is one where it's a really complicated situation. I'm not sure one that Western states are very well positioned to help unwind or address in any meaningful way through military intervention, um, despite the request from the current president to some extent. And in light of that, you know, you really are saying, okay, well, there's not much you can do in the medium term. You've got to play a longer game. And sometimes that means seeding the ground a little bit on the ground to other um, actors who might be able to have more influence. But if Wagner Group proves successful at, you know, stopping this insurgency and restoring regional stability, that might be a net good for everybody. And there might be other ways the United States and Western allies can get influence down the road through economic and cultural power, the other things that, frankly, where it has much more of a marginal advantage. So, yeah, I, I think that kind of cascading effects framing is a problematic one and one that I encourage folks to, to look at critically. I mean, speaking of the role of the West in this, I think another aspect is the role of France specifically. So France is obviously a former colonial power in the region. It's one that has tried to kind of keep a foothold in West Africa, uh, despite sort of increasing controversy over its, its presence there. And the, the New York Times has an article that's called A Shrinking Footprint in Africa for France, the former colonizer that stayed, which kind of says it all, um, about France and the coup in Niger that I think raised a lot of questions for me about what France's role is here. Um, it seems, as you say, Scott, it seems like this is really, the coup really may have just been sparked by the fact that uh, uh, President Bazoum was going to fire his the chief of his presidential guard who didn't want to be fired. We've all been there. But there, there seems to be a one other narrative that the coup is a kind of anti-colonial upset. Um, there's uh, pictures of, of folks standing at an Independence Day protest on Thursday in uh, Niamey, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, um, in Niger this past week uh, with a sign reading, France must go. Bazoum was a, an ally of France. My sense is that that sort of narrative is kind of pasted on and just like a convenient way for the coup plotters to justify themselves. But it's also, as you say, Scott, like because we really don't know very much about what's happening here, it's super unclear to me whether this is a message that is resonating among Nigerians or any, you know, something that anybody actually buys or just a kind of a, another easy way to conceptualize this that avoids digging into the actually really complicated politics at stake. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. I, I share Quinta, your skepticism. I mean, obviously, it's an empirical question. And who cares what we think? Someone should ask the Nigerians. And um, I'm assuming um, there's not a very well-developed uh, polling infrastructure there. And even if there was, it's probably hard to figure that out now. 
but you know, for for a bunch of reasons, I, I suspect that this should not be read as taking a strong position on the French colonial legacy of seventy years ago, one way or, or another. Again, th- this is not to Charles whitewash. de Gaulle turns over in his grave. Well, I'm just saying this is not to like whitewash France's colonial history. This is not to sort of engage in that debate of like you know whatever. This is an anti-colonial podcast. I, I mean, this is I, this is I, this is just orthogonal to I think this question <laughs> of, of like you know um, I I think. I think you know whatever whatever problems are driving Niger right now. I have no doubt that there are profound historical antecedents in the French colonial uh, history, uh, but I don't think France right now is playing any uh, particularly you know important role in the sort of Nigerian internal political uh, dynamics. And um, you know, while I do understand the, I, I understand the optics of this sort of kind of colonial hangover in terms of which. Western countries end up engaging with which parts of Africa in a kind of ongoing security or peacekeeping perspective. Um, you know, at the end of the day, if France can do good here, then we should hope that it does good here. And if the reason they're here in the first place is because of, you know, generations of colonial mistakes, like that's a separate conversation to, to be having. And it would, it would, I, it would be very unfortunate if, um, we got sort of dragged into turning this into some sort of post-colonial you know, historiography debate um, when there are sort of much more pressing issues happening on the ground in Niger. I think that's right. But I also think we need to be sensitive to the very real, you know, rhetorical weight and narrative that that these post-colonial narrative plays, because it's not just about post-colonialism. It's also about the non-aligned movement and the way a lot of these states came out of colonialism um, and then saw themselves figuring into the world. And that's been part of a lot of their national identities. Um, I don't know enough about Niger specifically, but uh, or some of these other states, but certainly in lots of post-colonial states, there's a reason why you have this rhetoric of that Russia and more recently and particularly importantly, perhaps China really lean into, which is the idea of you know national autonomy, local challenges, limited bases for intervention, and a, a general kind of live and let live perspective that is, you know, supposed to be channeling a lot of anti-colonialism energy. That rhetoric is still very real in China's foreign policy uh, kind of rhetoric. I, not, I don't think so much as Russia's, but I suspect all in a lot of his engagements with uh, Africa and certain other parts of the world, it probably still is very much a live issue. Um, and you see it come out in things like UN votes or the politics around the United Nations, where Africa is actually a fairly in- influential block that often coordinates to a substantial degree in the General Assembly, and it's the sway that Russia and China have, an angle that they play up fairly effectively at times, is the fact that they don't have these colonial legacies. And I think that definitely plays in here. I mean, basically, essentially, I think France, and then to, because of association, the United States, are intervening in these cases with a handicap because they have some assumptions against them in big parts of the public. Maybe they're not right-founded, but it's a reality we have to deal with. And that Russia and China and other states are perhaps capitalizing on um, that we shouldn't understate. So I, I think as a as a descriptive point about rhetoric, I think that's totally fair. I, I do just want to I don't know correct the record though. I suspect we all agree on this. Neither China nor Russia could possibly be interpreted as anti-colonial states given their history. Um, well, these are like some of the biggest empires in world history. Um, Russia, obviously, with respect to the Soviet Union and respect to many of its internal borders. And China, of course, which was an empire for thousands of years and continues in places like uh, Tibet and Xinjiang to be nothing more than a brutal imperialist power. Again, this is not to like, you know, this is not a both sides issue, but I just like the idea that Russia and China are, are, are anti-colonial powers is 
it's crazy. Right. Well, so, okay, look, like, yes, I agree. But I think it is also important to understand that that argument, like where that argument comes from and that it is very much alive in many parts of the world. There's been an ongoing debate in South Africa. I know specifically just I'll, just mentioning that obviously different part of the continent, but just because it's a place I'm familiar with, um, there is a long, long, long running argument over how to understand this. I agree. It's particularly insane when. Russia is currently engaged in what is literally a colonial war, but you know, I don't know, man. No, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I agree that, like, like I said, I agree with Scott that he's describing the realities of contemporary global rhetoric totally correctly. I just, I, I cannot let it go unstated that it is, it is insane in an sort of objective historical sense to put Russia and China in the anti-colonial, anti-imperial power column. I think it's more complicated than that for China. I'm going to say for the contemporary Chinese yeah, government, which agree. is different from historical China in a variety of degrees. I do. I think it's like totally distinguishable. No, I don't think it is. Like there's lots of things China does that very much is, is you know, expressing its authority. And part of it, what they do is instead of asserting colonialism and control over other states, they assert a very broad vision of what is China. Right. <laughs> so it's Taiwan, Hong Kong, Tibet, nine dash line, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there is a, there's a more rhetorical, there's a consistent rhetorical thread that I think is is there. That's part of the reason why Ukraine is such a hard – proven to be such a tricky rhetorical topic for them to have uh, be kind of in Russia's camp on and something that they've struggled to navigate. I, I, I generally agree with you. Like, you know, I, I don't think this is any, in any way saying China is a benevolent actor. It's not. Uh, and I think people kind of know that, right? But one thing that they don't do and the appeal of Wagner Group and Belt and Road is that they don't put a lot of conditionality on these types of assistance. They don't come with a lot of – human rights expectations or things like that, they come with a lot of things will be coming down the – like we assume things will come down the road as you cultivate a dependency, but they don't have as much immediate contingency or engagement. And here like a big critique of of France particularly but also the United States is in this case is that we've been fighting this Islamist insurgency then with the Sahel for a decade um, and have not made much progress in combating it. And so there's this question of, you know, how much can you promise with security assistance and other things like that? And if you fail to deliver, you know, what is the, how is that publicly perceived by these sorts of populations? You know, I think it's more complicated than that. And these are hard fights. And the Wagner Group, I don't see a reason to think they're going to do much better. So, you know, maybe part of the answer is here politically to say, well, they want to have influence in Sahel. Okay, now you're responsible for fighting this fight. And when they fail or fall short, then it's going to be a messy picture for them. That's actually a little bit of the dynamic you see in, in parts of Syria that have kind of played out into this dynamic. But, you know, that's a really comes with really high human cost, uh, among other things, not to mention a political cost. And that can be a bitter pill to swallow, um, even if it kind of a from a long-term strategic standpoint, there's some logic to it. All right. From, from a successful coup to an unsuccessful coup, let's talk about uh, the latest in the uh, Trump litigation saga. So uh, just for, for those who may not be aware, uh, Donald Trump, former president, Donny Boy, under several federal indictments, uh, so far at least. And today, the way we're going to sort of cut at this topic, which I suspect we'll be talking about every week until we all die, um, is going to be by comparing and contrasting the judges at issue, which is, I think, a really interesting way of looking at these two trials. So in the Mar-a-Lago case down in Florida, we have Judge Aileen Cannon, uh, who Aileen Luce Cannon, uh, as we, we might, uh, maybe we should start start calling her. Listener, you cannot, Eileen, you cannot, Eileen. you cannot appreciate the look of expectation and hope on on, on Alan's face as he broke out loose cannon, <laughs> waiting for us to laugh. It was right. Laugh, it was please. literally Can right I get there. a chuckle? Can I get something? Oh man, tough, tough <laughs> no, room. No, 
no tough dice. room. So we have Judge Cannon down in uh, Florida overseeing that case. Uh, of course, you will recall that uh, during the original investigations of Mar-a-Lago and the warrant that was executed on it, uh, Judge Cannon got into some hot water by issuing a series of bizarre and, as the 11th Circuit pretty conclusively told her um, on appeal, um, legally unfounded rulings, delaying and uh, otherwise making it very difficult for the government to do its job, raising real questions about her competence and impartiality. At least some of those questions are reemerging now as Judge Cannon, at a very early stage in the investigation, is issuing yet more delays and weird orders, and we'll get into uh, what those are. On the other hand, in D.C., we have the indictment over January 6th, and specifically Trump's attempt to, uh, through a variety of means, including fake electors and pressuring Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, There, that trial is being overseen by uh, Judge Tanya Chutkin, appointed by uh, Barack Obama. And in really striking distinction to Judge Cannon, uh, Judge Chutkin has been going sort of full speed ahead, clearly trying to keep this uh, investigation or this trial uh, on track for a speedy resolution, uh, though we'll see if she's successful. So Quinta, I want to turn to you and ask you to walk us through the latest in the Mar-a-Lago Judge Cannon saga. It it's, seems to be getting weirder by the day. What, what's been going on here? Because I've read about this now several times. I'm still quite confused. I honestly, so am I, but I will do my very best. Um, So (laughs) essentially what happened is that the government filed a motion for something that is very run of the mill in a criminal case uh, for something that's called a Garcia hearing. This has to do with the fact that apparently everybody in Trump world is represented by the same like two lawyers, some of whom are also representing one another somehow. No, no one else will represent them. It's kind of amazing. I, I, that I like, actually genuinely think that like, that's part two of the lawyers problem. are willing to do this. It's, it's legitimately it's remarkable. So Walt Nauda, who is one of Trump's co-defendants in the Mar-a-Lago case, is represented by a lawyer named Stanley Woodward who, according to the Justice Department, uh, has also represented another person identified, though not charged in the indictment, uh, in the Mar-a-Lago indictment, and is also (laughs) representing two other potential witnesses. So there are some obvious conflicts of interest there that could potentially come up. Um, And so a Garcia hearing is essentially a way for the court and the government to alert a defendant that this problem exists in sort of a formal setting and make sure that the defendant is aware of the potential risks of having a conflicted lawyer. So totally run-of-the-mill, normal, I think a bit weird just in terms of how many conflicts there are, but not exceptional in any way whatsoever. That motion from the Justice Department included a reference to the fact that uh, some of the witnesses who Woodward is apparently representing, um, they're not identified by name because of concerns related to grand jury secrecy. Um, that seems to refer to the fact that there are ongoing proceedings in front of the grand jury in the District of Columbia. So, so far, so good. All we need to do, right, in, in a normal world is wait and see uh, what Woodward and what Nauda want to do and sort of wait for their motion. Cannon instead 
Alan is already laughing. I don't even know if I can explain this. So she, so the Justice Department have filed some information under seal related to this grand jury secrecy matter. Cannon denied the motion to seal, and she also struck the motion for leave to file under seal and the information from the docket and requested that now to file a response brief addressing, and I quote, the legal propriety of using an out-of-district grand jury proceeding to continue to investigate and or seek post-indictment hearings on matters pertinent to the instant indicted matter in this district, um, and said that Trump, um, who has so far not weighed in, doesn't care about this at all, and uh, Carlos de Oliveira, who is the other a person who was indicted in a superseding indictment in this case recently, um, that they are may but are not they may but are not required to file their own briefs addressing this issue. So before I go further, I should say that it seems like there's a little bit of a difference between lawyers and how we want to think about this. So Ken White, aka Pope Hat, um, has been making the argument that it's not crazy for the judge to want to see if there's, you know, sort of deconflict in terms of the existence of ongoing grand jury proceedings in a different district if this there's already an indictment in her district. Adam Unikowski, who has an excellent substack that I'm substantially drawing on in explaining this insane situation, makes the argument that this is still bonkers because of two things. One is that Cannon jumped in before Woodward and Nauda could even file anything. Right? Like she doesn't even have to do anything at this stage. And the other is that she, because she denied the motion to steal, to seal and struck the sealed filings, that means that no one can refer to the information that's at issue. So she's asking people to weigh in on something that they can't weigh in on anymore. All of which is just seems like a super weird situation and apparently is somewhat of a just of a justice canon. Please, God, no. Judge canon. <laughs> A judge canon specialty, just kind of like leaping in and making weird, aggressive motions that don't really make any sense. Uh, So the last I've seen, I don't think anyone has responded to her order, but uh, that is where we are. So so I I think the the question here that's on everybody's mind is like, how to interpret this from judge canon? You know, I, I will say I, because I am perennially optimistic and maybe deeply gullible, thought that after her, I mean, truly embarrassing slapdown by the 11th Circuit, that she had probably learned her lesson. And based on how other litigants who have argued and litigated before her have described her, which is an actually very positive term, so it's just like a very normal, reasonable judge, you know, inexperienced, but all judges are new at some point, that she was going to sort of play it straight. And that just does not seem to be what's happening, um, which is obviously a bummer. Now, there seems again to be sort of a best case, worst case version of this. The worst case version is that for whatever reason, she is just trying to mess this trial up, trying to slow it down, trying to cause all sorts of problems for for God knows what, what reason. Um, uh, that would obviously be really unfortunate. The best case scenario seems to be, and uh, here I want to give uh, credit to our colleague, uh, Roger Parloff, uh, who sort of had had this thought. Um, I, I think it's a really good one. She's just really insecure and just kind of really nervous and is is just sort of flailing and doesn't really know what to do in a case like this, in a case of such high profile. And instead of doing what you should do when that happens, which is nothing, and just let most of these issues resolve themselves and just like take a minute, she's constantly inserting herself and just flailing around in a way that does not necessarily have like malign intent, but ends up doing the same thing. 
Um, and I was curious what you all think the best interpretation of this is so far and like what can be done if this continues? Because like we are not, we are nowhere near the miserable heart of this trial, which is going to be, of course, going to be like the, the SEPA litigation. And like we can't even get through what should be a pretty straightforward attorney conflict issue. It, it, it does not bode well. So I, I don't disagree with that. I think it's a little early to read too much into this one incident, particularly because I think this is very strange, right? Like I, I think I was I was tip of the spear of, of people saying this is weird canon to do. I don't think this is subject to normal explanations. I'm firmly in that camp, not the – there are legit questions here. There are legit questions about – you know, when the Justice Department can use grand juries, there are situations where the Justice Department could use a grand jury inappropriately. But there are a million reasons in this matter why it's entirely appropriate for them to keep using a grand jury, including that they're very clearly still investigating criminal activities in other jurisdictions where they couldn't be brought in the Southern District of Florida. So you're allowed to keep using grand juries there outside of the district. It's also entirely fair that they're still using a grand jury to investigate things in Bedminster in D.C., and relating to other defendants that might have a bearing here. Remember, this isn't about Donald Trump. That's about Walt Nauta and representation of him primarily. So jumping to such – I think it's exercising such an extreme reaction I think does reflect a lot of the factors at least at a minimum that you're saying, Alan. Like this is a weird way to handle this even if you were trying to stack things in Donald Trump's favor, right? The the part that I do find troubling is her flagging this issue and asking for argument about it because it is essentially doing Nauta's work for him. Um, right? It's saying, hey, here's an issue you need to brief and you should be considering your case. Now, in this case, I don't think the issue is a very serious one. And if she makes a serious ruling that's problematic in this case, then you're going to see talk to an appeal. I'd have to think about whether an appeal is you know, manageable in this in- initial case. But uh, you know, you, a bunch of other factors that would enter in to say, OK, like, well, if she's really going to start saying this outside grand jury information can't be introduced here, you know, how does that enter into this big equation? Is that a reversible sort of error of some sort um, now or at the back end? And it's worth noting the whole government enterprise here in this particular set of motions was to try and limit the possibility that Nauda will be able to make an argument on appeal that he had ineffective assistance of counsel because they are worried that if this conflict goes unaddressed and Nauda, um, you know, it's not squarely presented to Nauda in clear terms, then it won't be perceived as waived by him knowingly and and with full awareness of the consequences and he'll still have a claim of an appeal because Normally, if you don't flag these things in a district court, you can't bring them up on appeal. You implicitly waive them. That doesn't work with an effective assistance of counsel because you have an ineffective counsel. So it's part of your argument that they failed to preserve arguments that I need on appeal, right? So that's why the government's doing this. And honestly, like it may not need this extra grand jury information to do that, right? The whole point was to really make clear, hey, Mr. Nauda, you've got a conflict here and your attorney has a potential conflict and you really need to be aware of that. But it certainly be much better for the government if they can say, and here's the specific reason for the conflict. So an appellate court can't look at these specific reasons later and say, oh, he didn't know about this reason why there's a conflict and therefore that's the basis of ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, so we'll see how big a fight this ends up being if, if she ends up sticking to a hard line here. But it really depends on the kind of the merits of the arguments. Um, I, I think there's an erratic thing to do. I think it's an unreasonable thing to do. Um, and I don't think it bodes well for how – deliberately, uh, you know, she's going to be and, and consciously and, and conscientiously she's going to manage this trial. I think it's also true of her managing of the timing of the trial uh, and a lot of these other issues where she's been very willing to kind of kick the can down the road. But frankly, to her credit, not as far as Donald Trump and his team have been asking for, which is still after the election. 
So, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. Different trial judges handle things very different ways, and she's going to be a much more erratic one to watch at a minimum. I think this really does show that. Whether that plays in anyone's favor, I think we have to wait to see what the actual substance of the decisions is. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, I mean, on the kind of she's green, she's new, she's maybe not totally comfortable in the limelight argument. Um, there's a report recently from Reuters um, about a recent trial that Cannon appears to have botched in multiple ways. So first, she closed jury selection to both the defendant's family and to the general public, um, which is a Sixth Amendment violation. Um, and second, that she forgot to swear in the jury, which I don't I actually don't even understand how that happened. Like, aren't there isn't that what the clerks and the court staff are for? I don't know. So they had to restart jury selection. Then the defendant pleaded guilty. So it was moot anyway. But I think that that those sort of dual errors uh, maybe speak to just a general sort of uncertainty in the courtroom and maybe lack of facility with the the work that she's doing in addition to any eagerness to be gentle on Trump, let's say. Quinta, are you saying that Judge Cannon might take a loose approach? No, to- I'm not. Oh, damn <laughs> So close. <laughs> We're saying it's a small bore problem. It's a, that's, uh, a, that's a real, that's a real no, canon, canon oh, that's reference good. That's good. That's good. Yeah, she's really spinning out of control. Because mm. it's, mm, it's a right, it's a rifling show. Okay, moving on. All right, so let's let's not talk about, uh, you know, for every canon, there's an anti-canon. <laughs> Come on, that was awesome. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that was the title. Of, that was the title of a topic. Like, a few come weeks on, ago, that was nice awesome. Um, so let's talk about the the other judge, Judge uh, Chutkin. And I know Scott, you've been you've been following what's been what's been happening here. So t- uh, let us uh, t- t- tell us about uh, what uh, what Judge Chutkin's been up to. Yeah, so Judge Chutkin is how I've been pronouncing it, but oh, maybe that's Chutkin? not right. Okay. My, my uh, but, but I could be wrong. I definitely um, thought it was Chutkin. I think I think it's Chutkin. Um, Judge Chutkin, uh, relatively n- not new at this point, but been on the court about eight years, uh, nine years since Obama. I think she was appointed in 2014, if I recall correctly. Uh, she is, of course, overseeing the new January 6th trial uh, and indictment. And the only real action we've seen in this so far is a debate around a protective order. During the hearing of the arraignment for Donald Trump, the government said – in response to a suggestion by Trump's attorneys, well, there's going to be a ton of discovery and we're going to need lots of time to look over this discovery. The government said, we are ready already to hand over the vast majority of discovery to the opposing side. 
We just need a protective order in place. A protective order is a, a type of order issued by the court that restricts, among other things, it can do other things as well. But in this case, primarily is used to restrict how a party receiving discovery may use it. So can they talk about it in public? Can they um, you know, include it in tweets or political speeches, right? Particularly prominent here. And the government is seeking a protective order that limits those sort of extraneous uses and access to this sort of information, right? They're going to hand over in discovery. Trump's legal team pushed back initially on the timeline that they wanted, basically said, we can't talk about this. We need some more time to think about this. And it seems to fit into a longstanding trial strategy we talked about before, which is to kind of delay and slow up things and try and push things past the election. Uh, instead, Judge Chutkin really does not appear appear to have taken those complaints very seriously, um, basically said, give me a time Wednesday, Thursday or Friday this week when you can have a hearing. Uh, we then saw a kind of wishy-washy reply where the government said, hey, yeah, any day, anytime, any day works for us. And there was this kind of block paragraph response um, from Trump's attorneys where they said, well, one of us has a hearing. We really both like to be there because there are two attorneys, I guess, two main attorneys. We really both like to be there. And one has a hearing this day. Another has a hearing this day. And they didn't really explain why they could and couldn't be available during different periods. And then Chutkin went ahead and assigned a hearing for Friday morning. So pushing them aggressively on this time frame. Around the same time, at the same time, you've also seen this sort of narrative push that this trial is intended to restrict Trump's First Amendment rights. It's, is is really the argument is lawyers appear to be teeing up one of several is that it is invalidated. On, it should be invalidated on First Amendment grounds, and specifically, there's concerns about this protective order uh, going to restrict his ability to say things about the trial um, and about material raised at the trial, and that's going to be part of what the government is requesting or what that the court ends up granting sua sponte. Um, and there's an argument that, and Trump himself has come out and whatever we call it, on Truth Social, he truthed uh, or bleated, as I believe some people called it. Um, <laughs> he spewed. Spewed, bleated. Uh, he said, you know, oh, I'm going to keep talking no matter what. I have a First Amendment right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing this. So kind of suggesting, hey, uh, I am going to go on and ignore whatever protective order you may issue, although we'll see if he actually does. And then it's worth noting another tweet said, if you come after me, I'm coming after you, seen as a threat to people investigating him, Jack Smith and others. And this is on the back of a story published in, I can't remember where it was, was it in the Times? Um, uh, a, a story laying out the legal strategy that people around former President Trump are setting up with his knowledge and consent to find statutes that allow him to exercise retribution against Jack Smith and others. Uh, I can't remember whether it was specifically referenced the uh, judge in that or not. Clearly, look, this story was sourced to people close to Trump and are the same people inspiring this idea that I'm going to come after you, right? So it's part of a strategy. It's not a coincidence that story dropped right before that bleat did right before this. these matters are um, waiting before the court. So far, Judge Chutkin hasn't responded to those issues yet that I've seen unless something's happened the last day that I missed. So please correct me if so. Um, but she scheduled this hearing for Friday and we're going to hear you see a debate about it. It's very different from Judge Cannon in that it is just pretty ordinary course, if anything, kind of an aggressive push to move things towards a conclusion and try and reach a res resolution on a lot of these issues on a faster time frame. Now, I think it was dangerous to read too much into this order because this is a very basic sort of first step in this trial. Again, they're not setting the trial date. This is just literally when the government hands all this information over to Trump and Trump can begin preparing his defense in theory, right? So this is step one. So it really makes a lot of sense, particularly because the government came in saying we're ready to give this all over. All we need is one thing to push and try and get this done quickly. I suspect Chutkin, she does maybe seem inclined to 
push the trial and, and move things along quickly. She's done that in other January 6th related cases, although not necessarily unfairly or in a way that's atypical for cases like most trial judges want to move matters quickly. But it does set up a very interesting point of contrast with Judge Cannon who – you know, at least in this one matter, has gotten pulled down through a whole other line of briefing, although admittedly a government-initiated sort of line of briefing um, in the first instance uh, in another case, and then doesn't – is more willing to push the can down the road in terms of scheduling. But again, there are very different trials. We can get into that a little bit about why they might have reasonable – different reasonable approaches. Yeah. So, Scott, I, I want to pick up on one thread of what you were saying, which is about Trump's uh, threats or – uh, ominous bleats, let's call them, uh, at the very least, about you know going after people and stuff like that. I mean, I think one thing that's notable is that at least the government, at least the judiciary, is taking this seriously. There's been reports that uh, Judge Chutkin's security is being increased. Uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if something like that would be appropriate for Judge Cannon down the line. Though, of course, the the valences of those are are different, and I suspect that um, a judge that is perceived as being harsher on Trump is probably in greater risk of danger than a judge who is uh, perceived going the other way. Though, honestly, you know, you, you would, never know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect the Marshal Service to make that assumption. Exactly. Nor 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 should they. I think just to yeah, be correct. very clear. Nor nor should they. You know, what, how should we think about the the, the possibility for you know, the risk of real violence against the judges, against the prosecutors, against defense lawyers, I mean, against, against anyone involved in these sort of super high profile cases, you know, especially given that it is just not in Trump's nature to try to tamp down uh, tension and rather um, to sort of inflame them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a very real risk. It's especially I mean, look, I was thinking about how. Early in Trump's administration, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but he was attacking Judge uh, Gonzalo Curiel, I think was the name of the judge, who was a Latino judge um, who had ruled against him on some matter. um, And Trump went after him. And in this case, it is worth noting that Judge Chetkin is an immigrant. I believe her family's from Jamaica and she is a black woman. And I did note that Trump wasted absolutely no time going after her, even though he didn't seem totally clear about what he was going after her for. I am going to continue making the very wonderful immigrants. They get the job done comment until oh the day I die. Okay. I think it's so good. I think it's, it's, I think it's amazing and nothing but respect, nothing but love. So, so I mean, look, I think it's I think it's very real. I think Trump ha- clearly has a habit of ginning up anger against everyone, but particularly against people who come from groups that his supporters tend to dislike for whatever reason. Um, and I also think it's important to note that, look, like this is not a guy who feels very strongly about loyalty to people who he thinks have done him favors. I am 100% sure that if Judge Cannon does anything that he doesn't like in any way, in any capacity, he will be out there attacking her as well. Um, Like that is just not even slightly in question. And so I don't know, like what is there to say except that like I hope the marshals are prepared. It's going to get really ugly. But I I think this feeds into – the meta narrative that's developing around these judges already and and the dangers of it to some extent, right? Because I think we have a narrative around Judge Cannon that's not entirely unearned. <laughs> like there's not – there's no data points behind it, right? Particularly when you go back to the special magister debate in last year with this idea that she's in the can for former President Trump, right? And this order does feed into it, although frankly if it weren't Judge Cannon who issued, had this recent exchange with the special counsel's office uh, on a docket, your reaction would be more like, huh – this is weird, not this person's in the can for former President Trump, right? So it's really being informed by that kind of prior history. 
And then we have Judge Chutkin, a narrative developing that she is, you know, if you're on the left, a crusader group for justice. If she's on the right, if she's a, you know, part of the deep state's conspiracy uh, to to punish Trump, that, you know, every effort she has to maintain a swift trial, which, again, is very normal judge behavior, is somehow part of her agenda to hold Trump accountable if you're if you like it or to punish Trump, you know, extrajudicially, extra legally, if you don't like it. The truth is like a lot of this stuff is just within the the band of the decisions that trial judges make. And they're really different matters. Like there actually are really good reasons the Florida trial will take longer in pretrial hearings potentially than the January 6th trial because you have a ton of classified information you have to deal with, right? January 6th trial, there's going to be a lot of complicated pretrial issues, but a lot of them, executive privilege, attorney-client privilege, et cetera, are issues that the D.C. court system or the federal court system in D.C. has already wrestled with in the context of the January 6th investigations and grand jury proceedings and a number of other issues. So a lot of them, there's they might get dealt with faster than people think. And so it's just really dangerous to to build these narratives. It's what the media does, like, and it's very understandable what human beings do. Like, we like stories. And so we fit figures into stories and we make assumptions about their motives and their inclinations. And it doesn't mean that there's not some element of truth behind it. But we really, I think, have to fight that instinct if we're going to be responsible members of the media um, to go too far one way or the other because it has real collateral consequences for the legitimacy of these proceedings and the safety of the people involved. I mean, sure. I, but there's being responsible and then there's just ignoring what is it in front of your nose, right? Like I think, yes, if a different judge had issued this order that Cannon had issued, we would look at it differently because that judge, judge wouldn't have done what Cannon did previously. Like I think it's reasonable to – Look at her current actions in light of what she's done in the past. Oh, I don't. I don't disagree with that. But I also think we have a pretty limited data set, and drawing a lot of firm conclusions is a little premature. That's my point. My conclusions on Judge Cannon are all dente conclusions. Is what I would just like to say. They are. They could trend in another direction. Toothsome. I, th- toothsome. I thought that I was a Cannon pun again, and I was trying to figure out like, is that a t- like, is there a pasta that's called a Cannon? No, what? no, there is not. I am just operating at like thirty percent brain capacity because of this cold. So. <laughs> and I'm thinking about pasta. My dad jokes are even lamer than usual. Well, talking about protecting judges, let us move the conversation to protecting our children. <laughs> that is the correct <laughs> inflection is, for this topic. You. Thank That's you, Scott. Only, I am glad <laughs> that you have you have figured out the appropriate tone for this, which is not measured at all. No. The only way you can refer to our children is just stridently our with children. an element of concern. <laughs> Certainly Congress is being strident with an element of concern when it comes to our children um, because we have seen the new version of this law that has been floating around for at least one other Congress, maybe earlier than that. But it's been on my radar loosely for at least one Congress at this point called the Kids Online Safety Act or COSA. It is a law that would install a number of measures that are aimed at addressing what I think most people agree is actually a genuine and real policy question and that there's really good – medical science backing up um, the issue, which is that developing brains, juvenile brains, teenage brains um, interact with different types of communications technology, particularly social media, not limited to social media, in different ways. Um, and that is those factors are contributing to mental health issues, sometimes very dangerous and deadly mental health issues among adolescents like depression, like image problems, um, like uh, the loneliness epidemic that Hillary Clinton wrote about in The Atlantic, which is actually was actually an interesting uh, piece and take on uh, a report issued by the Surgeon General a, a few weeks ago about the the dangerous health, health effects of loneliness and a spike in loneliness among adolescents, actually, but among all Americans, but particularly adolescents um, in the United States. And that that these online technology, the availability of them, are actually contributing to these real public health problems in ways that scientists and experts find credible. 
So, you know, the question then is, what do we do about it? And how do you balance with the need to address these policy measures, uh, these policy concerns with the other very real policy value we have, which is freedom of speech? Uh, and the use of the internet as a place that, that facilitates uh, and sh- the sharing of information, the sharing of views and ideas uh, in ways that isn't strictly required by the First Amendment necessarily, but serves that greater value that the First, the First Amendment does, which is that we think we are a marketplace of ideas and, and encouraging that. So COSA is walking this hard line, and it's a line that we've seen lots of other law- laws kind of fall on the wrong side of or fall afoul of uh, and often not end up getting enacted or sometimes get enacted and then – get invalidated or struck and shaped in certain ways that uh, have some unintended uh, consequences. The Communications Decency Act being being one of them, I think, if I recall correctly, um, from back in the 90s. So, Alan, you know, this stuff is very much up your bailiwick. Tell us about COSA. Tell us how this diversion of COSA differs from the old one, particularly, like what they've done because they've, they've revised it to try and address some of these legitimate concerns raised by Electronic Frontier Foundation, other groups that are very engaged on the kind of digital civil liberties side of this. And tell us where the concerns remain in the law. Yeah, sure. So just a couple of things to say more generally about COSA. So first, um, it's co-sponsored by Senator Blumenthal, who's a Democrat from Connecticut, and then Senator um, Marsha Blackburn, who is a uh, Republican and a quite conservative Republican from Tennessee. And I say that because this really is a bipartisan bill. Of course, bipartisan does not automatically mean good, uh, but it is still notable in this age of polarization. You have a bipartisan bill that was voted out of committee, I believe, unanimously, and has a real chance of being enacted. Um, I suspect the Senate will enact it. Um, I think the House has a lot of reasons to want to enact it, even under Republican control. And President Biden has come out in favor of the bill. I, I don't know how I would sort of do the betting market on this bill, but uh, you know, I think this bill has you know as good of a chance of passing as sort of any bill in recent memory on on tech policy, and I think that's um, notable. The original bill had stringent requirements in terms of platforms tailoring their content and design to children and requiring them to sort of know, uh, you know, who their user was and what age uh, their user was as, as part of the design codes and the design obligations that the law would impose on platforms. And this created a lot of concerns that this would was basically a de facto age verification requirement, as we've been seeing in some state laws. And this raises a lot of concerns among privacy advocates and internet freedom advocates, because um, in order to do age verification, you have to collect a huge amount of information from all your users. And so there's a real privacy concern there. And also because even with age verification, it can be difficult to know who exactly you're dealing with. Um, the stringent kind of requirements that platforms would have to place in order to stay on the good side of the law would probably lead to a lot of false positives, which is to say a lot of people who did meet the age requirements would nevertheless not be able to get on these platforms. They had other concerns, but I think that was the sort of major one. Um, the current bill does not have that requirement anymore. It softens the kind of knowledge requirement uh, for for platforms in terms of their obligations. So now they have to uh, either actually know that they're dealing with a child or have sort of reasonable, uh, you know, r- reasonable understanding based on objective criteria. It's an odd formulation. This, I, I do think, is a substantial difference from the original bill. Um, it is not, however seen as enough by the critics of the original bill who still think that this vague language will de facto lead to age verification requirements. Um, and the new version of the bill does not address any of the other objections that the you know, privacy and civil liberties community had, of which I think sort of two are, are the, 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 the two biggest ones are as follows. The first is that the, the obligations that the bill imposes on platforms, which is basically to sort of you know, design their platforms in a way that does not harm children, is 
very vague and very broad and is sort of not clear what that actually means in practice. And the other objection is that one of the main enforcement provisions of the bill is beyond the the FTC enforcement um, that the bill provides for is that it enables state attorneys general to sue platforms when they believe that those platforms are not acting sort of in the best interests of children. And the concern there is that have you met our state's attorneys general? Um, and specifically that, you know, we have a lot of states, there are a lot of different views, and especially on the right, you know, there are lots of states and lots of Republican states attorneys general that think that, for example, you know, any content related to LBGTQ issues, to transgender identity, to critical race theory, you know, that that is by definition harmful. And therefore, any platform that allows children to be, quote unquote, exposed to that information is violating the law. And in fact, the, this new version is actually getting criticism from right wing organizations like the Heritage Foundation for not, for example, explicitly listing the transgender content as something that is sort of by definition harmful to to minors. So, the, you know, I, I think these are the, the main objections. And, you know, I will say I, I do find some of them compelling. I do think it is a mistake to let states attorneys general be involved in something like this. Uh, I, I don't see why that is appropriate. I, I think that this is the sort of thing where you want a long-term, technocratic, rule-based, FTC-like process over a long period of time for figuring out what the rules of the road uh, should be. I mean, the FTC has its obviously its own problems and, and issues, but you know, it is not, I think, does not have the pathologies of states attorneys general. And I also recognize that, like, look, the, it's hard, to, it's hard to know what it means to act in the best interest of children. You know, Scott, you mentioned in your introduction that, you know, we have a lot of good scientific data on the harms that social media can cause to children. That's true. But like all medical and social scientific data, you know, it's incomplete. There are conflicting studies, you know, we're still working through it. There are also pockets of individuals that may benefit from social media, right? So a common argument made, and I think, you know, has, you know, a lot to say for it is that, look, if you're, you know, LGBTQ kid and you're in a community that doesn't support that, then being able to access information about that or community about that online and not have to tell your parents about that can be really valuable. At the same time, you know, all of this said, I, I think I have to say, I, I have to put myself like at the end of the day, kind of in the pro column on something like this. I'm not, you know, if I were a, a congressperson, I'm not sure I would vote for this bill because of the state's attorney general. But if you were to strip that out, I think I probably would vote for this bill, um, even given the very legitimate concerns um, on the other side. And that's because, you know, this strikes me as a, a serious public health issue. This strikes me as something that for years and years, it's clear that social media companies are just not able to deal with on their own, frankly, because of the just financial motive and the financial pressures of getting as much engagement as possible. And, you know, 14-year-olds really like social media. And, you know, while I don't think there are going to be any good solutions to this and that there's going to be trade-offs and that, you know, there's no way we're going to be able to solve this problem without some, honestly, collateral impact on the speech rights of adults. We have to just accept that fact. This does strike me as as an issue where, like, something has to be done. And while I don't want to fall into the trap of something has to be done, this is something, therefore, it should be done, uh, you know, I I welcome this at least as a sign that Congress is very serious about this. And if you know, the platforms and the civil society folks don't want this, they're going to have to come up with something else. And that something else is going to have its own trade-offs. But we can't just keep kicking this can down 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 the road. Even though, again, I think this bill, for lots of reasons, has has you know, serious serious issues. I suspect Quinta disagrees with me, though. I think this is a terrible bill and a terrible idea. Um, I also I look like the internet. It's complicated. Health of kids. It's complicated. I don't think that we have good data showing that it's harmful. I think the data is extremely mixed, and if you read 
the Surgeon General's report um, and a recent report by the American Psychological Association. It says essentially which has endorsed this bill. Right. But if you look at the data, it says sometimes the Internet is good. Sometimes the Internet is bad. It's complicated. We don't really know. The data are extremely, extremely inconclusive. Um, There's a ton of suggestion out there that we have this kind of idea that looking at, you know, something online changes your beliefs or changes the way that you interact with the world in such and such a way. If you look at data, it's just not clear. I don't think that the numbers are good enough. And there is actually, it's not just speculation that for LGBTQ kids that the internet can be helpful. There's plenty of research that does indicate that it's actually, that is actually a group for which access to the internet is affirmatively helpful and reduces depression and suicidal ideation. And so I think that what is important to keep in mind here is when we say we want this bill to help the kids, right? Um, which kids? How are we helping them? What are we protecting them from? Um, who is doing the protecting? Because if you think about a system that is going to essentially set up an environment in which kids need some level of increased approval from parents or from a parental figure to access particular information or to access the Internet – I agree that in your sort of perfect idyllic model of childhood um, where you have a trusted adult who can make those decisions in the kid's best interest, like, yes, okay, fine. What about a kid who is LGBTQ in a family that's not accepting of that? What about a kid who's being abused by their parent, right? Um, There are all kinds of circumstances in which I think that you actually really don't want that kind of circumstance. And what I worry is that those people are not in a position to lobby against this legislation because they are weak and vulnerable, which is exactly the same reason that I worry that they will be extremely harmed by it. Um, And so I think that when we talk about, you know, social media, the Regulating social media to protect children, it is really, really worth drilling down into the specifics of which children and how, because as soon as you start thinking about that in a more granular way, it gets really complicated really fast. And that makes me worry a lot about the follow-on effects here, especially given that we're in a political environment where we have seen that state governments are very eager to remove access for LGBTQ kids to gender-forming health care, whether or not you think that the particular manifestations of that are a good idea. I think you have to take seriously the possibility that a state government that restricts all access to gender-affirming care might also want to restrict kids who are questioning their gender, might be trans from any access to sort of stuff online um, about gender identity, that should be concerning, um, not only for the health of those kids, but also as a First Amendment issue. And I just think that, as you say, Alan, the urge to like do something, I worry that it is overriding the actual real difficulties of this kind of policymaking. And I worry what it shows is that Congress has learned absolutely nothing from FOSTA where exactly the same thing happened. Internet freedom groups, sex work advocates all said this is going to create real problems. It did. And Congress has just completely memory hold it. Um, and so I am deeply, deeply, deeply worried that we are 
going down that road again and that this is really in particular handing a loaded gun to people who do not have the best interests of a significant portion of children in mind. So, you know, I I think this is a debate where like the empirics are a situation where it's difficult to split the difference, right? Because on the one hand, you have people saying this is an issue that we have a credible basis for believing, if not perhaps airtight evidence, that affects a majority of people a certain way. And then there are concerns that it affects certain populations a different way in a more negative way, right? And so the answer is you ideally would not have a one-size-fits-all solution for all of this. You would find some way to say, okay, we can have variable policies on these things. But we tend to lump in broad legal standards, right? So this, this law does actually have a way to try and get around this. And it's actually a little different than I think most people advertise. Uh, it's, and it's actually very innovative and interesting, although I don't, I'm not sure it really makes sense to me, right? Like what they're saying here, they're not independently empowering states' attorney generals to make up their own standard, which is the way that it's being – uh, framed by critics of this law, right? They are uh, providing a basis by which state attorney generals can sue to enforce the underlying law. Yeah, which we, we've seen that happen with FOSTA already. That's the same legal structure that we've had in FOSTA and it's had really, really bad chilling effects. So uh, what I'm getting at here is that they're trying to set up – and I'm not endorsing this. I'm trying to describe it accurately for people who haven't read the law – is that they are setting up a mechanism by which they're trying to set up a, essentially a common law judicial process to define what these broad within what is within these broad standards that they're finding right so they're saying because they say essentially a state attorney general can intervene and start these actions basically giving them a cause of action and boosting their standing arguments i guess a bit although i'm not sure they really need need the help in this particular case and saying okay we can sue for our citizens we think are harmed in this particular way and then the ftc can intervene as well and present contrary arguments like they have a right to intervention so you still have the federal government being able to weigh in and say, here's where we think our standards are, which will change depending on the administration, depending on your political perspective and depending on the administrative process. And then you will have a state attorney general come in and say, we have a contrary reading of this law and it comes down to the court judicial process, right? I think this is how this works. Is I just think that the I just think that the the parents patrie portion of COSA is exactly the same. I mean, Alan, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought I think it's the same as FOSTA, and I think it's one of the aspects that raises the most questions because you end up with a patchwork. Yeah. So 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 I I think both of you are correct, right? Which is Scott, you are accurately describing the law, and and I think that is a, a, an important clarifying point, right? It does not it does not enable state's attorney generals to decide for themselves and then directly impose these regulations and these liabilities on platforms. It's absolutely true. And Quint is also absolutely true that, you know, the result of this will be, um, especially when the more out there, right, state attorneys general, and we've been focusing on the out there right wing state's attorneys general, but you can imagine weird left wing attorneys general yeah, totally. doing all yeah, sorts of weird stuff about this, uh, you know, too, uh, frankly. Uh, the, the, the chilling effect, the sort of what is your general counsel going to tell you effect is going to be profound. And, and this is why, and, and this is why I, I, I feel like I, I don't understand why the state's attorneys general thing is, is in there. Because I think if you were to strip out the state's attorneys general thing, right, and say, look, we're going to give the FTC the authority, which of course, because of the APA and general administrative law principles will itself be overseen by court. So you still do get that court involvement. We're going to give the FTC the authority over the next several years to really start thinking through these issues. Um, because the FTC, unlike court common law processes, can can do things like say, look, as a general matter, infinite scrolls are particularly bad for 12 and 13 year olds because, you know, 
they get stuck in these like loops and they don't go to sleep and they just keep scrolling, 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 right? But at the same time, you know, having access to certain kinds of LGBT spaces or certain kinds of religious spaces or, you know, whatever. I would keep focusing on the LGBTQ uh, plus group because, um, you know, that's a high, high salience group, but there are other examples of this. That's important. You can come up with this long process. So, you know, I, I, that, 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 that is sort of where I, where I, I, I come, I come down on this. I, I guess kind of my, my, my also kind of my meta surprise on this is like, I just, I, I don't know why progressives who, generally are more okay with like a lot of government regulation of all sorts of things get so nervous when it comes to when it comes to this to this issue um, i've always found that sort of an odd an odd thing and and, and you know I, I i think this also just may show kind of a, a, a fault line within the democratic movement because you know i think to maybe to quinta to your earlier your earlier point you know i i i don't think that it's it's that you know, LGBT kids who are at risk sort of lack a means of lobbying here. I mean, I, I think their interests are being actually well and ably and loudly and correctly so put forward. I, I just think that the sort of democratic senators uh, have just decided that like this is one of these areas in which the benefits of regulation just may outweigh the the costs. Yeah, I mean, look, there's definitely a fissure within the sort of more interventionist portion of the Democratic Party and the more sort of techno libertarian leftist, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, but I don't think is, um, that I think that we've we've seen come to a head in recent years. Well, and but I think the point I'm getting at when describing this narrative, right, is that like they're trying to kick the can down the road. They're trying to hand the task over to the courts, right? They're saying, here are some broad standards. The courts, with inputs from state attorney general, I suspect this is why the state attorney general provision is in there to some extent, is saying we want some sort of regionalized input other than just the federal government, right? That's going to help input into the official judicial process for ironing these things out. And they'll have amicus briefs and other things like that, right? That's a very messy process for the reasons Quint has already noted, right? You end up with very big, much patchworks until – Maybe the Supreme Court resolves it one day or appellate courts resolve it in a particular area, right? Um, you can end up with very divergent standards. It's a weird way to go about this. I mean we do it in the common law but only with the assumption that's going to be overridden by Congress when it becomes fairly inefficient and that happens historically fairly often. But it's, it strikes me as a weird surrender by Congress, right? Like ideally I think you would have Congress delving into some more substance about this. But it seems to me a suggestion that we all agree something needs to be done here. That's a big mess of problems but we don't feel equipped to do it. Maybe we can set up a framework – to allow people to argue this over and get to some better outcome. I don't find that super appealing personally, um, but I but I also get it if you're saying this is an issue that we just don't know how to handle, right? And again, like this is how we've handled liability structures and evolution of law and a bunch of other areas of law. So like I see the I see the intuitive saying, well, why not apply that same framework here, right? There's going to be a long period of friction and human costs in between there as there is with the development of all these legal regimes. Um, but maybe you get to a better outcome at the end. Who knows? The flip side of this though is that you know we also are federalizing these issues. This is like an inherently federal issue, right? Like we've talked about state laws that try and take AMS on these issues and have been equally critical of them at least in part because you're saying, well, well state patchwork solutions, this really don't work. And so it seems weird to me if we're in a situation where we say state solutions don't work and there are maybe legal obstacles to state legislating in this because it bears on so much federal activity. Congress appears paralyzed by this uh, and unable to really reach substantive solutions. They're trying to kick the buck to the courts. The courts are a weird place to generate policy. And like I think these contours of this law are broad enough that they would really be generating the meaningful policy. Very much not what courts want to do. 
I think courts will be very uncomfortable with this and have a lot of trouble implementing it. Um, I suspect, even though, again, it's not totally foreign to stuff they've done in the past in other contexts, um, non-statutory contexts, like more common law contexts. So it's just not – it's a really hope kind of sad statement about the ability to engage around this whole issue set, I feel like. Um, like the only thing people seem to be able to get, reach agreement on is to do something but without really much consensus on what the substantive standards are and without a willingness or an ability to delegate it out to a more local level where you might have communities and with legitimate concerns to say, well, you know, what about people who are minorities in their communities? It's just a very tricky issue set. But I also think that it's an issue that benefits – I actually think like a lot of people are acting very much in good faith and trying to do find a way to help people on this issue set, and uh, and and that often gets you know overlooked by people, you know, criticizing one perspective or the other. But there's just not an easy solution with our current institutional barriers here, and I think if anything, this appears to be a real testament to that. Well, folks, that is all the time we have to discuss this week. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us? So I have a, I think a, like a Quinta-esque object lesson in that it's, it's like really intellectual, really thought provoking. <laughs> it's, it's not just television. Um, so a few weeks ago, there was a really wonderful kind of long form opinion piece by Christine Emba, who's a Washington Post columnist, um, entitled Men Are Lost. Here's a map out of the wilderness, which is kind of a, a, the latest intervention in what we've seen over the last year or two, which is sort of folks on the center and the center left. I'm thinking here of Richard Reeves, who's at, at Brookings and wrote this wonderful book of, of men and boys. I'm trying to grapple with this question of why in certain domains, not all, but obviously, not all, obviously, but in certain domains, uh, men and boys are really falling behind and having sort of their own sort of unique challenges and trying to articulate uh, a diagnosis of that that goes beyond just saying, you know, toxic masculinity a bunch of times and trying to put forward a positive version of, you know, what it means to be a man um, or what it might mean to be a man and kind of reclaim that dialogue from the right, which has, <laughs> yeah, which in, in which, which has not done a great, a great job with it. So she wrote a wonderful piece about this a few weeks ago. And then that's kind of my object lesson. Um, and I, I mentioned it this week because she also uh, this week went on the, the gray area podcast, which is Sean Illing's podcast at, at Vox, which is a wonderful, like long form interview podcast to talk about it. Um, and that's a great conversation as well. So that, that's my, that's my double header. Um, you know, as, as a man who is a father and a father of a two year old boy, um, I actually think this is a very interesting and not obvious question. Um, and I really am so, so grateful that folks again on the center and the left are thinking about this because boy, do I not want Andrew Tate to own this space? Cobra Tate? You know, he has brothers who are the exact same. I had no idea. This yeah, there's more up. than one. There's more than one. They're reproducing oh oh somehow mm -hmm. in spite of it all. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say I thought that it was a really interesting article as well as a fellow father of a boy and the son of a father of a boy before me and a son of a father of a boy for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Deep. So what, what do you have for the Fathers week? of sons and sons fathers of fathers. Of sons. Yeah. All the way down. Exactly. Exactly. Isn't there like the a checkoff play or something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a, a throwback object, which I think I've, I feel like I've been doing a lot recently. Um, so I think I've already talked in object lessons about my love of the Discworld series by Terry Pratchett. This is related to that. When I was in middle school, there was a book that I checked out from the library and I was so obsessed with it that I uh, repeatedly, quote unquote, forgot to return it. And eventually I ended up being hit with like a $50 fine, which I did pay. And that book was Good Omens, which is a novel about the apocalypse by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. 
I mention it now because they made a TV show of it a few years ago, and now there is a second season. I do not think that the television show was any good. Honestly, I kind of hated it. But the second season coming out reminded me that I enjoyed the book so very much, and I went back and started rereading it, and it just filled me with joy. It is about uh, Angel and a Demon trying to prevent the apocalypse. It was published in 1990. There's some interesting, like, end-of-history vibes to it in a way that makes me wonder, like, if you couldn't really, maybe the reason the TV show doesn't gel is because it's kind of harder to write like a cute, fun story about the end of the world in 2020 when the world is so much closer to actually ending. Um, but if you are looking for some light entertainment, I highly recommend Good Omens, the book, not the TV show. Well, at a good omen of my own, I'm going to invoke <laughs> uh, a past object lesson. I think sometime last summer I was recently reminded I did an object lesson about grilling pizza, which is my favorite thing to grill. Uh, Because grills, you can get really hot like you want to have a pizza oven, and they're incredibly effective at making pizza. So it's a great thing to do when it's warm enough to grill outside. Um, Using gas or or charcoal? uh, I use gas at home. Charcoal is even better. Gas gets gas. gets it hot enough? It gets it hot. It gets it extremely hot. Ideally, you could get hotter, but it's still pretty good. Uh, as far and like you use a, a pizza setup. steal, I assume, or something like that. You don't. Well, just put that's on the what I'm about to get to. Oh Alan, boy! Okay, is that sorry. I have <laughs> I have upped my method. I've upped my game this summer in a way I'm very excited to share. And I took pictures the last time I did this. I'm going to share online where I used to use a pizza steel, a baking steel, um, which worked well. You know, you get a little more even layer on the bottom. Although, frankly, you can do it directly on the grates if you don't have these things, and it actually does work. You just have to make a little drier dough uh, and then flip it and then top it on top of the pizza, on top of the grill. I think that's what I talked about. It actually works. It's delicious. But I do like the version with the pizza baking steel better, and you can do, like, more conventional, traditional Neapolitan-style doughs that are too loose to do on top of grates. What I did is I would do this, and I usually end up making, like, three, four, five, six pizzas at a time because I have a bunch of people over my house. And it's hard to do one at a time. And so what I did is I got some heat-proof bricks, and I built a pizza oven into my gas grill where I have a peak baking dad. steel. It's peak, yeah, it's a peak this dad is, move. This is, this is very dad. And then fireproof bricks to the side, and like a little hole in the back where I can shove ashes and, like, burnt, uh, burnt cornmeal off the bottom of pizza after I cook it. And then with another baking steel on top. I bring the lid down. I crank the heat oven all the way up. The temperature in the overall grill gets to about 650. Uh, Inside between the two metal plates, it's closer to 750 and has a lot more residual heat. Then when you want to put a pie on, you turn the heat all the way down underneath the bottom plate, shove in the pizza, let it roast for like three or four minutes, then pull it out, put it on the top steel, and you can put your second pizza in the bottom, and you got like a whole production process going. And you don't burn the bottom anymore, but you still get the crispiness on top. It is wild how effective it is. It cost me – it did cost me like what? Like 150 bucks, I think, all the pieces combined, but it's not that bad. And I can take it apart and just like set it on the shelf underneath my grill and forget it. Maybe not the baking steels because they'll rust. It's amazing. It's a great process. I'm super happy. I finally got around to piecing this together um, after having I think we had the idea like three or four years ago and never executed. It's great. I can't recommend enough. It's like the best homemade pizza I've ever made, and I make a lot of homemade pizza, uh, and it's excellent. So I'll send some pictures on Twitter. Check out this method. Sink the money into it. If you got a gas grill big enough, it totally works. Charcoal, there's also great options um, with charcoal but uh, where you can get even hotter. But this does the trick, uh, and the, the, the results are excellent. And with that... That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rash Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit on our new website at lawfaremedia.org and visit our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. While you're at it, be sure to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security or X, excuse me, follow us on X at RATL Security. uh, And be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. 
Also, be sign up to become a Materials Board of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week is Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We were once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. I have my co-host, Ellen Quinta. I am Scott R. Anderson, and we'll talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye.